Hi, this is Betsy Corcoran. I'm co-founder and CEO of EdSurge, and we're here on an EdSurge Extra podcast. Today, I am in outside of Washington, D.C., and with two really interesting people, Paul LeBlanc, who is president of Southern New Hampshire University, and Rusty Greif, a partner with 1776. Full disclosure, 1776 is an investor in EdSurge. They could get more money, though. Well, we'll come back to that at some other point. Um, the conference that we have here today at 1776 is all about the chasm between where university educations are and what the workforce wants. Paul, you at New Hampshire have been really a leader in thinking about this question and in thinking about how to help really uh, all kinds of students, not just the kids who get out of high school and come straight into college, but particularly working adults and other people. Talk a little bit for, uh, for us about how you conceptualized this problem and then how, a couple years ago, you started in on competency-based learning. I think um, I often say that uh, one of the great impediments to innovation is to have a large endowment or a great reputation. Um, because I think in some ways you sort of drink your own Kool-Aid. Um, and we had the benefit at Southern Hampshire University of being a largely unknown institution, very localized, a little bit regional perhaps, and there was a general sort of ethos of our, in our DNA was a sense of a real dedication to serving students um, and a real desire to be better, to sort of think about what, how do we reinvent ourselves for the future. And with that backdrop, um, I mean, and perhaps there's a little bit of sort of you know, pop psychology of my own sort of working class, blue collar, sort of chip on the shoulder, uh, sense of, you know, A, how transformative is the power of education, and also a little bit of sort of reaction to those markers of status that always felt to me unanchored from where real talent lies or where real education lies. Yes, it's a, it's a long prelude, excuse me, but the answer to ask the question, you know, if you think about higher education as being a faith-based initiative for the last 600 years, right? Yeah. And the notion was that if you had enough volumes in your library, and enough PhDs on your faculty, and enough students with high SAT scores, that what came out of the other end was going to be fine. It was going to be great, actually. Right. Right. Um, what happened if we could reverse that and said, what if we were really clear about the claims we make for our learning and how we know? Those are the two fundamental questions at the heart of the whole competency-based education movement, which I suspect we'll talk about. How do we, what claims do you make for your students, and how do you know? And if you can answer those two questions with great clarity, you open up a whole world of possibilities for how you get students there, right? In some ways, we ought not to care how you get them there, because those are the really critical questions. Um, and it was sort of that, it was with that sort of backdrop, that conceptual framework, that on a flight from Kuala Lumpur to um, New York, uh, 2011, I wrote a kind of white paper called the next big thing question mark. And it was sort of the, uh, the broad framework for what would happen if we, and, and, and with a goal of we have to put education in the reach of more people who can't afford it. We're just losing far too many people. Right. So what if we could sort of say, we're going to be really clear about the end goals, but we're going to blow up the delivery model to make it more affordable. How would we have to do that? So then you get into things like unbundling. You think about OER and alternatives to expensive content. You think about you know part of what colleges and universities offer is a sort of affinity group and learning support ecosystem. Could you do that in a workplace? Because workplaces are affinity groups quite often. They offer affinity groups. They offer an intentional environment. Could we partner with employers to be fully engaged in that effort with us? So a whole sets of questions. And so I sort of laid out the questions. It's easy to ask questions. Great credit to the College for America team. 
I'll call it CFA, the CFA team, because they then sort of went out and answered the questions. And what we've seen is the model really works, and it, it, it puts education in the reach of students who wouldn't otherwise be, be in college. And it's fascinating. And for you to be asking those questions in 2011 was a fascinating time. It was the early days of the enormous MOOCs, and there were a collection of people who were saying, well, the answer is just to blast a lot of content at people. But by starting at the endpoints, by saying, what is it we want people to get out of this rather than at the start point, you got to a very different answer. Yeah, and I think also influenced very much by Clay Christensen's work on jobs to be done and a recognition that the job that 18-year-olds ask us to do in education is different than the job that a 35-year-old is asking us to do when they're stuck in a job and they can't take care of their families in the way they need to, or the jobs that employers are asking us to do. And those are very different from one to another. And if we were trying to build an institution to serve adults, non-traditional age students who didn't have a lot of resources um, and who had to make this work in their busy lives, trying to sort of simply take what we do for 18-year-olds and drop it into an online world isn't the answer. And in fact, most of the uh, not-for-profits have tried to do that have failed. Um, so there was that backdrop. Clay was on my board. He's a trustee emeritus. He's an old dear friend from graduate school days. So really influenced our thinking and how we answered the question. I you know I said we articulated the problems, but we used his playbook really in many ways to try to create what became College for America. And then there was a sort of revelatory meeting in, oh God, it must have been, maybe it was later in that year, 2011. We were at a meeting in Miami, Florida with uh, ETS that put this together, kind of looking at new models and assessment. And um, someone talked at that meeting about the little clause in Title IV for an alternative to the credit hour. It was, and this is an extraordinary language when you think about it. It was written by all accounts, the mythology is that it was written for Western governors who didn't use it. And it was a language that said as an alternative to the credit hour, institutions can disperse financial aid on the basis of direct measurement, a direct assessment of student learning. Which you would think, don't you want all of higher ed to have assessment of student learning? Um, but we were intrigued by that, realized no one had used it, and sort of even as we were working at our delivery model, it gave us a little crack in the door to think, how would we be able to uh, uh, comply with Title IV? And it gave us the opening. It wasn't easy. There was a lot of work to kind of get that right. Yeah. And, but, you know, um, that, that led to the model that is, was uh, the first direct assessment program approved by the U.S. Department of Ed. That's fascinating. Rusty, I want to pull you in here because I couldn't help but wonder really two questions as I listened to some of the conversations today, again, about this gap between what employers want or need and what schools, many schools, uh, may be delivering. Um, gosh, a long time ago, 100 years ago, maybe when I got out of thousands college. Thousands of years thousands ago. Thousands of years ago. It seemed like it was the responsibility of the companies to help train people. Did companies punt on their responsibilities altogether? I think some companies have punted, sure. I think there's been a, a punt. I, I think also um, the state of, of even that structural pathway into a company has changed so dramatically. And we've talked a, a fair amount about this today, right? There, there, um, the model used to be um, incredibly uh, constricted and structured. Um, uh, there was a certain segment of the population um, that went to a four-year college, and there was an expectation that after that, uh, that experience to then immediately go into a corporate environment that was well-structured around training and building out 
a pathway that was a career. That career may have been absurd now that we look back on it, but still people made a commitment to that idea. They made a commitment to a certain amount uh, of companies with it, with meaningful brand and retirement retirement plan and all of that kind of stuff. And so the American dream was founded on uh, a paycheck and, and a house and two and a half children. Um, the world has changed dramatically. We've become unbelievably flat. And um, there's new expectations. There's expectations on the student side. I mean, one of the things that we've talked a little bit about today is a more consumer-centric view of the learner, even at the high school level, what their expectations are. I think Paul does a pretty extraordinary job with how they are trying to be very responsive and re in some respects very reactive to what their consumers need, both at the faculty level at the student level. And so I think there are new expectations of that. With those new expectations, in some respects, in the best sense, come new choices and new pathways. And in some ways, people are finding those alternative pathways where either they're continuing college, dropping out of college, whatever it may be, but they have new options. And those options may not be corporate structures anymore. They may be startups in more innovative environments. They may be organizations that are global in nature. But what has happened in this new economy that a lot of people call kind of this free agent economy where there are endless choices and there's an expectation potentially of moving from career to career is one, the employer or the learner now, the student that's going into the organization, does not expect training and services. But what's even more damaging, I think, is that the organization also doesn't expect to provide those training and services. Um, they recognize that maybe that employer will be with them for a limited period of time um, and that there will be a transition from company to company. And so that commitment no longer, I think, and I don't want to use gross generalizations, but it's significantly different than what we saw 50, 30 plus years ago. And so I think there's been a huge punt, and, 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 and Paul and others are, are carrying some of that weight on their shoulders because there's new expectations now at the university level. What's extraordinary about that, obviously, is you may have an 18 or 19-year-old, and it's not necessarily the best time to be receiving certain training and being, being expected to learn certain things. Brains are at a different place. Maturity levels at a different place. Their own personal experiences are very different. So that expectation, I would argue, is flawed. Um, what we see, because we're investing in a lot of these companies, are that there's really innovative companies that are seeing this gap. And not only a gap, but they're seeing the opportunity to partner with universities or community colleges or uh, other organizations to help um, take that consumer block and provide new, again, everyone likes to focus on coding, which is fine, but that's a single skill set. Um, we, we talk a little bit today about soft skills, but the reality is, and, and, and some people really enlightened, I, I thought were really thoughtful about this earlier today, is that there really are managerial skills that are critical. There's critical writing skills, there's problem solving skills, and critical skills that are necessary, obviously not just in work, but in life. And we're investing in companies that are actually providing that. They're providing that through practice, through platforming, through work. I'm going to come back to those companies. I uh, want to key on one point you said. You said the world has become flat. Has it become flat, Paul, for those 35-year-olds who you know, didn't get the college degree in the first place? And if, well, let me stop there. Has it become flat for those 35-year-olds? Uh, is it Stiglitz who talks about, you know, so response to Thomas Friedman, it's like the world has begun, it looks flat if you stand far enough back, but it's actually quite spiky if you sort of dive in a little further. So, so I think it's very spiky by virtue of demographic and socioeconomic status um, and, and race and ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, you know, you get these sort of mega trends that I think are not enough in our conversation 
um, as we look at higher education's challenges. So one is this enormous transformation that's going on, just the sheer nature, fundamental existential nature of work as automation, technology, AI, etc. I mean, there are people who are now positing a world where we mostly don't work, um, or where we will not produce even a fraction of the millions of jobs that we will need to produce globally if we had the sort of same economic system in place. So and if I kind of jump in head around that. One other point on that, I find it interesting in talking to people, either hiring people or other folks in larger corporations as well, where they, they're shocked at the expectation that people are actually going to report to work. That there's actually a physical space that they're going to actually be working in as well, yeah. which has completely changed the dynamics of this concept of work where people now, in some respects, and again, it depends on the, the organization, may have the expectation that they should be working in their home or in another environment that's not necessarily where the collective of but, work exists. But interestingly, right? So the companies that are driving the innovation that allows that to happen all spent an enormous amount of money in making sure everybody wants to come to work. Yeah. So and you have the, the campuses the of Google, you have the campuses right. of Google. Couldn't agree with you more. Right. Right. So, right. so there's like weird stratification within sector that's yeah. going on. And I think the, you know, and if you think about the period of time and course of human history in which large amalgamations of capital were necessary to forward economies, we're, that's a fairly short amount of time. So there's the gig economy, but in some ways, more importantly than that, there is the undercapitalized or the low capital demand economies. The reality is five of us, three of us here, could start a company now with almost no capital, right? Because technology and lots of other things allow us to do that. So what I see, a couple of things is happening with our graduates, and it's going to influence the, you're right, employers, large employers have, I think, uh, stop doing a lot of things that they did in the past. But in reality, millennials are not going to demand that they do other things. And millennials actually care that you invest in me. And if I'm now, as the economy improves, competing for employees, in my state, the unemployment rate is 2.5%. Right? Virtually no unemployment. So for me to compete, I now have to be really thoughtful about how I attract millennial candidates into our, you know, we hire a lot of people. Um, how do we do that? And they're expecting a certain kind of investment. So it may not look like the traditional corporate training, onboarding, we don't talk enough about the degree to which middle management has been cut out because young people used to have mentors. Now my mentor is, what, three years older than me? I mean, so, so what, what replaces that, I think, is a sort of interesting question. But companies are, I think, starting to answer that question differently. I think they're giving people more ownership of some amount of development dollars, investment dollars that they now own. And you talked to somebody, I was just with Mike, uh, Mark Berlini of uh, Aetna, so one of the largest companies in the country. Mark's one of those progressive CEOs who understands he has to reinvent his company culture. And you know, so he's doing it with mindfulness workshops and yoga and all this other stuff. But he's also thinking about what does my workspace need to look like? What do I need to do to attract the next generation of employees? So it sounds like what you're saying is that both the universities are thinking harder about how do we give students the skills, uh, whether they're those 18-year-old students or the 35-year-old students, how do we give them the set of skills that will enable them to go and, and find their way in the workforce? We may be seeing some progressive workplaces kind of trying to respond to that and saying, all right, we're not giving you the traditional 50-year career with the golden watch, but we're going to try to think about other elements. What, Paul, do you want 
What do you think, you at the at the University of New Hampshire, Southern New Hampshire? What do you want from the entrepreneurial world? Are there things, are there tools that you think will help support you, or do you just want them to get out of the way? No, so the entrepreneurial world in terms of the tech sector. Or yeah. yeah. So I think there's been this interesting shift. You know, all of us who are at GSB this year, I think, saw shifting in theme. So the, there was an insurgent rhetoric three, four, five years ago that was higher ed's a dinosaur. We're going to replace it. We're going to blow it up. We're going to be the new higher ed. And I think that sort of gave way to um, a new uh, sort of major theme this year, which is no successful ed techs are going to be partners with traditional higher ed. Exactly. We are going to give them tools to let them try to do the things that they haven't done before. What almost all of them are also recognizing, by the way, is that we may build tools and platforms, but we better have a services business because if I'm selling into that market, they actually don't know. Like, they want to do the right thing. They don't know how to do the right thing. So it's interesting to me to watch the sort of quiet services industry happen inside platform companies and tech solutions. But if you look at like a really great company, I'm a huge fan of Civitas, for example. Schools know they need to do data analytics. They're really bad at it. They collect tons of data. Um, but they're in siloed systems, you know, like it's, a, it's in some ways an indictment of the state of technology in higher ed generally, the world of SISs and other things. But so Civitas comes in, not only kind of solves the silo problem for them, not only gives them the tools to good data analytics, but they really help them ask better questions. Data is not useful if you don't have good questions. It's just, it's just flow, right? So I think um, the, ed, the ed tech sector is, stands to play an, an enormous role as we go into this next generation of tools. So learning relationship management versus the old traditional LMSs, which you know sought to replicate a classroom slash faculty center engagement. LRMs put the student at the center. Um, full disclosure, we, we have a, we've spun off a, such a company. But if I look at data analytics and I talk about Civitas, if I look at the advising stuff that Fidelis does, kind of consultant's company, um, you know, these are these are really going to be useful tools. And then you've got Workday entering into the space and saying, no, we're going to build the next generation SIS. We're a design partner with them uh, because we want to help shape that. But you know, we are still living legacy systems that not only are technologically antiquated in many cases from a you know cloud-based SaaS security perspectives, but they just don't serve the way we need to work as a model. So it's the stuff that's not sexy. You know, when we talk about innovation, everyone's like, hey, let's design the new program. It's like, you better have your financial aid person at the table on day one and your IT person on the table because they're going to have all of these constraints on what you can do and how inventive you can be. Or you need to challenge them to really think dramatically different. So I think the ed tech sector has an enormous role to play in enabling that under the hood work that's so critical to innovation. And Rusty, are you hearing a little more humility from the ed tech companies, that transition that Paul talked about from, hey, we're going to replace the university to, well, we're going to partner with the university. I, I don't know if the word humility in ed tech CEO falls in the same <laughs> sentence, but um, wishful so that's, wishful, that's wishful thinking. Um, so I could not agree with Paul more. It's a podcast, but I'm actually jumping in my seat and hugging him right now in agreement. Um, so I, this is... It's a really important point, and I think to your, to your question, that's the answer is yes. I, I think I think there has become a reality now, and actually, how do we work with established entities? We do we we do this quite often, but literally around a month and a half ago, and you mentioned Civitas was one of the companies in there um, that we were closely with. But, um, we actually did a convening with 
university provosts and, and other ed tech providers around exactly these issues. And there was nothing seductive about that conversation. There was nothing, there was no bells and whistles. It was very much how do we actually do this? What are the right questions to ask? What are the right questions that we're not asking around these issues? How does it work? Literally, how, who do we work with on campus to make this happen? What, what platforms do we need, legacy or not, to work? So I know that our, our ed tech entrepreneurs are getting much more sophisticated in, in those questions and those approaches, where I think very frankly, and this is again years ago, and the, the, the overall sector has become more, more nuanced, it was let's blow it up and we just have a better bell and whistle and you need to listen to us. That proved to be a failure. I mean, literally that's proved to be the wrong approach. You need to work with the institution. In some respects, you need the institution to have the idea first and figure out a way that, and then you have the solution. But um, that banging on the door, and, and I'm, a, you know, I'm an entrepreneur that helped co-found two companies, and I was one of the people that banged and said, you're not getting it. And, and the reality is maybe they weren't getting it, but it was the wrong approach to work with the university. Right. Let, the, oh, sorry. sorry. I think the mental model a lot of people have was of sort of the music industry or the newspaper industry, where they really did go off the precipice. And there was a sense of, if we can just sort of get the innovation right, if we can be the Napster of higher ed, we can sort of blow the industry up, but we're not in an unregulated world. With you know, we're we're more like healthcare, and it's hard to blow with big behemoth complexes and like healthcare with third parties that pay earn a, a regulator. So we will be it's a different model that's happening now. Just kind of follow up on one, one other point to this: we spend a lot of time, at, just specifically at 1776, and with our partners, and we've actually built curriculum around this, which we call regulatory hacking. And the idea is literally not how do you break it up, but more how do you navigate through systems? Uh, how do you navigate through institutions? And again, to Paul's example, uh, that goes across our verticals, education, health, energy, really complicated industries. And, and banging on the door or saying blowing up has proven not to work. And so there has to be a far more level of sophistication and nuance on working with provosts, university presidents, yes, regulatory bodies, regional bodies, and so forth. And we literally built systems out to work with tech entrepreneurs because understandably so, many of them don't have that sophistication. They don't have that mind sensibility to even understand how that works. They don't have a language for it. They don't understand the roadmap for it. It's hard stuff, but um, we're doing a small part in helping educate those sectors and those, those entrepreneurs in better understanding that. I think that's an important thing because I think it's actually to lead to more successful and sustainable companies and more meaningful partnerships. Uh, it sounds like there's a lot of learning that's been going on in the last five years, and that is fantastic because we're all about learning. Uh, so here's the last question, and you get to offer the question, but not the answer right now. What's the question that this year you would love to hear people asking and pushing on, but that is not yet a part of the dialogue? The, I'm, I'm going to struggle to frame the question. I feel I have a deep conviction about what I think the big problem we're facing is. So if we are moving to um, a world that I very much hope is the case, which is that we are finally, as an industry, going to be really clear and rigorous uh, about the claims we make for student learning, wherever it happens, whether we make claims about our internships, about our courses, 
But I would argue that humanity should try to make these claims because they don't tell their own story very well. Philosophy is probably the single most important major any institution could offer in terms of intellectual training. But like, it doesn't do a good job of explaining that. Nope, and it can't, and it, and it does a terrible job in terms of the claims it makes for learning. Like, if you ask them that question, like, well, how, you know, I'm going to ask students to prove the existence of God. It's like, no, you're going to talk about logic models. You're going to talk about critical exactly. thinking. Go talk the stuff that you know that Accenture cries out for. So anyway, if that's the world we're moving towards, the huge failure, the sort of place where we are most weak is in assessment in higher ed. If the state of assessment in higher ed is generally poor, the state of higher ed around performance-based assessment. So competencies shift the limelight from what students know to what they can do with what they know. Right? That's a competency. What can you do with what you know? Performance-based assessment is really, really terrible in higher ed, except for those places where our lives matter. So, if you, yeah, and in that case, higher ed sort of doesn't even do it. So we say, great that you get good grades at my institution, but now some third party is going to give you nursing boards. And by the way, you're going to have hours and hours and hours of clinicals under the watchful eye of a practice nurse in a hospital someplace. And we do this with pilots, right? It's great that you had great grades at Emory Riddle, but you're still going to have to take the FAA exam. You're still going to be in the simulator, and you're still going to be in the right-hand seat for hours and hours before we let you get in the left-hand seat. But for most of higher, we don't do this well at all. Until we get much better at assessment, um, competency-based education is always going to have this Achilles heel because we can. I think we can readily get at the what claims do you make, and I think we're doing better because we talk about outcomes for a long time, and that gets us halfway there. I read, but I think we're we're really vulnerable if we can't say great confidence. This is how we can stand behind our claims. This is how we know. So the question I guess I would ask of every institution is: You think you do certain things? How do you know really? How do you know? That's a great question. Rusty, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll play in the clouds a little bit more and piggyback Paul a little bit. Um, we talk a lot about competency-based learning, and there's all this debate now about the, the integrity of a credential and the value of a degree, um, and maybe the disappearance of, of what it means to have a liberal arts education. I'm still really interested in this idea of meaningful citizenship. And what does that really mean? And I think we, we naturally put it around work, and that's there's a lot of self-worth, understandably so, associated with work and competency and mastery. Those are those are those are important things that that drive us as individuals and human beings. Um, but I'm a tech startup guy that's probably a little bit more old school in, in my sensibilities in some respects. And so I think this idea of what does it still mean to be a meaningful citizen and engaging that in the context of the role of the university, the corporation, the startup in that, in those questions are still important things that I ask. Paul talks about philosophy. I have a 12-year-old who's studying philosophy all summer because he asks those questions. That's stuff that like yeah. really bothers him. And his friends are telling him to not ask those questions. And my wife and I are like, please keep on asking those questions. No. So there's a little bit of a lost art in that. So uh, I think um, you know, what role do universities and corporations play in creating meaningful citizens is something that's interesting to me. Those are two fantastic questions. And maybe next year we'll come back and see if you've been able to answer them. I want to thank both uh, Rusty Greif, partner at 1776, and Paula Blank, who is president of the Southern New Hampshire University. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Rusty. Great to be with you. That was fun.